Dear friends, welcome to the fourth lecture in our series, Russian Piano Masterpieces, and it's about Stravinsky. And I must say that uh, I wasn't in a bit of a doubt whether to include him, because he wasn't a pianist composer like Rachmaninoff or Scriabin, or indeed like Prokofiev, uh, and uh, didn't write that much solo piano music. Uh, but it just seems that we cannot even go on in the 20th century without him. Uh, he is, uh, has been such a seminal influence. And starting to discuss Stravinsky as the pianist, um, I came across this quotation where it's as if he heard my thoughts, whether or not I am a pianist. The instrument itself is the center of my life and the fulcrum of all my musical discoveries. Each note that I write is tried on it and every relationship of notes is taken apart and heard on it again and again. So I think that's why we're going to talk not just about his piano music, yeah, his, his music in general, and it's wonderful to have Peter Donahoe with me again, who um, hasn't just played solo piano music and recorded it, but you've played it as a duet pianist, you also played it as an orchestral pianist, mm -hmm. uh, you played it as, uh, as an orchestral uh, percussionist, Yes, he seems to be completely central to my... Yes, uh, and, my and you life. conducted it as well. Yes, yeah, so basically in uh, Jack of yes. all trades. <laughs> he dominated my early professional life to some degree because I was uh, essentially um, known for playing music from the 20th century. And of course, Stravinsky was the, the person who oversaw the whole thing. Um, he, he influenced virtually everybody and he absorbed many influences from previously as well, which I think makes him a fantastic link from the Romantic era into the 20th century. It's interesting, Marina said about his piano um, playing being, or, or at least piano music, the instrument of the piano, being central to his compositions, because I understand that his orchestral music was plotted out on the piano in the first place. So he's, and he was a good pianist um, in, in a sort of composery kind of way, which means he didn't do any practice, of course, basically. But he, he was a natural, a natural uh, pianist, for sure, and you, it shows to some degree in how he wrote for the piano. So uh, indeed, you know, he uh, had a kind of elite uh, music education. His father was an opera singer, so he had the best teachers. One of his teachers was Leokadia Kasperova, who was actually a, a composer, an important composer. Mm -hmm. And this is what he says about her uh, lessons. Uh, Mademoiselle Kasperova, only idiosyncrasy as a teacher was in forbidding me all use of pedals. I had to sustain with my fingers, mm. like an organist. An omen, perhaps, as I have never been a pedal composer. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting, because there are, there are, in fact, I think even on YouTube, one can hear Stravinsky play the piano in his own piano sonata, which we'll, we'll be hearing a little of later on. Um, and it's almost like um, he doesn't know where the pedal is. And not only that, um, but he plays, he plays it as if he wants to remove any kind of, of nuance uh, as, that you associate with romantic music. It was like a kind of negative approach, sort of anti-romanticism, as opposed to it being a completely new style. It was like the opposite of what had happened before, which I think he grew out of. And of course, many other composers did the same thing. Prokofiev certainly did. Um, and uh, the, the Viennese school of Schoenberg, Berg and Webern, they were all kind of looking back and saying, we don't want to do that anymore. Um, I, I, that's my take on it. And as they got older, they, they became much more accepting of the past. And so I will play Stravinsky's piano sonata in, in a, a way that Stravinsky may at the time not have approved of, but I bet he would now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I wanted to mention that in the 20s, yeah, he had this suddenly an urge to become a concert pianist which who would perform his work. And I think it had to do with competition with Prokofiev because Prokofiev started playing his own piano concertos in Paris and he had a fantastic sensation mm. and he got this triple fee for it and Stravinsky wanted to do the same. <laughs> so he started practicing, you said that he didn't practice. That was the point in the 20s when he started practicing mm. and playing, actually even took some lessons lessons. Yeah. Uh, and uh, when Prokofiev was practicing his own piano concerto, he came into the piano shop Playel uh, with, um, with his friend Poulenc. And, <laughs> and Stravinsky was there practicing his own piano concerto 
with Jean Vienner. And this is the quote, that, which I think is very funny because it, it tells you what Prokofiev thought of Stravinsky. We were in time to hear only the concluding bars, which came over very well, dramatically effective, even if in the technical bravura passages, where Stravinsky rose to the occasion, throwing himself with abandon into the octaves. He proudly showed us his biceps. Where can he have got those from? Uh, he was actually, he did work out, yes, sir? <laughs> even though, as you can see, he's so much slighter than mm. Prokofiev. Mm. So Prokofiev really thought, well, I'm the real pianist, Stravinsky is not, so how, how can he do it? And yet he was doing it quite mm. successfully for many years, actually. Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't really know how much he practiced in any other decade, mm. as opposed yes. to the 20s, but it, it, feel, it, it sounds to me when I hear him play that, it, that he is a composer playing his own music. Well, let's hear a little bit. Which isn't quite the same as, as <laughs> playing someone else's music or being actually a pianist playing a composer's yeah. music. Let's hear a little bit. This is Capriccio. Lovely piece. <laughs> the yes, Capriccio uh, for piano and, and large orchestra. Very good piece mm. indeed. In fact, both the, work, the, the main works for piano and orchestra are amongst my favourite 20th century pieces. Mm. Uh, the piano concerto for piano and wind instruments and this Capriccio are just utterly glorious. Mm. I, I did record mm -hmm. th all these pieces and, and some of them to me are greater than others for sure. Uh, but as a whole, it's a wonderful collection, available from all good outlets for recordings. Now, the interesting <laughs> thing is that Petrushka, which I'm going to talk about next, and of course, which we mostly know as a ballet and also mm. as three, these very virtuosic piano pieces that he mm. made out of the ballet 10 years later. But uh, it actually arose, yeah, it emerged uh, as, a, as a, an idea for a piano concerto. He had an idea uh, of a kind of violent altercation between the pianist and the orchestra, which I think we can still hear in the ballet, before it was Petrushka. the original piano concerto that he envisaged in mm. his mind. And yeah. then he wrote these two piano pieces first, or rather sketches for piano pieces. So one was the Russian dance, Dance Rus, and the other one was based on this music, Petrushka's Freaks, yeah, mm. or Cries. Mm. And uh, Diaghilev, when he just heard, I mean, Stravinsky was a rising star of the Diaghilev company, of course, and when he heard these pieces, he said to Benoit, um, Alexander Benoit, his designer and librettist, yesterday I heard the music of the Russian dance and Petrushka's shrieks, which he had just composed. It's a work of such genius that one cannot contemplate anything beyond it. So Diaghilev knew immediately that this was something, and you had to make a, a ballet out of it. Mm. And Benoit then out of this, these ideas in this, these piano pieces, created a ballet. You know, this is how it's, it's, um, it started. And very interesting what he says about Petrushka's shriek. Yeah, after he heard it a couple of times, I began to discern grief and rage and some sort of confession of love together with an overarching despair and hopelessness. So basically out of these chords, yeah, he gets mm. out a whole character, yeah, a mm. character of Petrushka. Is it not that it's polytonal, or bitonal rather? Just hold on a moment. Let's I'm talk sorry, about the I'm Russian sorry. dance, and then okay. we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> so uh, the Russian dance, I don't know whether, we're not going to pre-anticipate uh, that you're playing it, <laughs> but uh, basically it's, it's a, a, an interesting piece because it's both very simple and very complex. Yeah, it looks like mm. there's a lot of notes there, but there are only two harmonies at the very beginning. Mm. And it reminds me very much of 
this piece by Tchaikovsky from the children's album, uh, which is basically supposed to imitate uh, a peasant playing a concertina. Yeah, and so it has only two, uh, two chords. Uh, maybe you could, you could read that a little bit. <laughs> hmm. yeah. actually ends on the dominant, doesn't mm. even, uh, yeah, so this is basically, he wanted to, to represent exactly that instrument, uh, which uh, does one harmony on the push and yeah. another harmony on the pull. It became a, a, a absolutely seminal to Petrushka, of course, because mm. of the sound of the fairground in which the action of Petrushka takes place. So it's that. Which is all the way through the, the ballet, and mm -hmm. I believe you can do it by blowing into the mouth organ for probably the tonic and then sucking back for the dominant. So you end up mm. with that, that uh, which is all the way through the piece, except where Petrushka himself appears and then it's, mm -hmm. it becomes two keys, almost uh, diametric, diametrically opposite to the, the joyful sound of yeah. the mouth organs. Yeah. Yeah so, yeah, so it, mouth organ and the concertina, yeah, they have the same principle. I just wa mm. was going to show this. Mm. <laughs> so Fantastic. that's how it works. <laughs> well, could I just uh, play maybe two lines of a piece by Tchaikovsky? This is a particular favourite of mine, and it appears was a great influence on Stravinsky as well. Tchaikovsky was a, uh, Stravinsky rather, was a huge fan of Tchaikovsky. Admired him enormously, quite rightly, of course. Um, and this is a humoresque from a, an early piano piece of Tchaikovsky uh, that Stravinsky used in his ballet The Fairy's Kiss several decades later. Exactly, it's like a kind of cyclic theme that comes in the ballet, and it goes like this. Um, I'll miss the first eight bars out because they're not relevant to it, but the, the, the main theme is this. the same no notes that you hear throughout Petrushka mm -hmm. and of course m many many uh, uh, examples later on uh, in his instrumental music as well. Yes so uh, and now if we, get, if we get to Petrushka himself which of course Nijinsky danced you know famously um, you can see how the music of that shriek yeah that we've just heard sort of translates into these contorted movements of the of the puppet. <laughs> talking about yeah the two keys and I think very interesting that it's actually pianistic isn't it it's kind of pianistic by tonality because it's it lies yeah. under your hands at that point it is yes yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> not later yeah but uh, if you could just show how it works yeah because it's white and black notes So one hand on the white notes, one hand on the black notes. So again, the piano is, is the initial impetus for this. And I, I just wanted to mention why Petrushka's Shriek, because, well, this is a, a painting yeah, about Petrushka as a character. So if you can see him, he's actually originally an unpleasant character. He, you know, he's very violent. He beat, beats people up, as you can see there. It's a punch, yeah, basically. Uh, and he has this voice, which was produced for the puppet with a uh, voice modifier, like a kazoo. 
so, so basically, yeah, when, when Stravinsky uses something like a muted trumpet or this, mm. uh, this harmony, he wants to imitate that quality of it. Mm. Of course, later they, they made him much more three-dimensional three character, yeah, and he's actually a suffering romantic mm. artist as well. But that's the initial mm. in, impulse, I think. So he is the, the Russian equivalent of Punch and Judy, basically, yes, yes. and Piero yeah. also. And in, Piero in as well, at the same time, yeah. 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 A very stud character. Yeah. Really. So I guess you'll have to... <laughs> um, now my, my history with this piece, I must, I must mention it and I'll be as brief as I can be. Um, uh, when I was at school, um, a friend of mine who played the bassoon, um, and I used to love his playing actually very much, and I played, I accompanied him occasionally on the bassoon, and he, he told me one day, I could even visualise where we were standing, uh, that the, there are these wonderful pieces, one's by Karl Orff, Carmina Burana, that has this hugely difficult and very high bassoon solo, uh, but there is the Rite of Spring by Stravinsky, which I'd vaguely heard of, and the only reason I'd vaguely heard of it was because my grandfather, it, it appears, um, mentioned Stravinsky as a, as a really quite an important figure in music when I was really as young as I can remember. Uh, and I basically ignored it, and the, the name just lodged in my mind, and that was, that was it for several years. And my friend uh, said, you really need to listen to The Rite of Spring because it's such an exciting piece. Uh, we were only like 15 or something, I suppose, something like that. Um, and, um, and his interest was the opening bassoon solo, but he was also um, absolutely uh, enthused by the incredible virtuosity required for the music later on in the piece and unbelievable excitement. And I heard it at the Harley Orchestra uh, series in, I think, 1969 or 70, uh, conducted by Maurice Hanford, apparently unbelievably quickly, but I didn't actually take that in at the time because it was the first time I'd heard it. Um, and it's a concert that, well, that, that really started off my, my uh, obsession, almost, with Stravinsky. I wanted to hear everything he'd written, and it, 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 actually it was 1969 for sure, not 70, because the 1969 Leeds competition, uh, piano competition, included a performance of uh, three, three movements from Petrushka, which is the piano solo excerpts from the ballet, um, played by Boris Petrichansky, who remains one of the most influential pianists in, in my history, really. Uh, he doesn't know it, by the way. I think I may have told him at one point, not so long ago, but he didn't really take it in because he couldn't really understand why it would be. Uh, but he had played that piece in his semi-final, uh, and I have a recording of his performance. Uh, and it influenced me so much that it became absolutely central to everything I did during my late teenage years and, and right through to when I did, did the Tchaikovsky competition. And I played Petrushka in, in the semi-final of that as well. And, it, and it, it seems to have been associated with me for so long that it was quite difficult to get away from in the end. Um, I've heard it a lot as, as a jury member on many competitions, played by young, much younger pianists than I, with hugely fantastic um, techniques uh, that I can't even begin to approach now. I guess I wasn't too bad in those days, but it's a long time ago now. So my performance of it is a little slower than it used to be. But this is the dance ruse and the transcription of the, the is it, is it tableau number Second, two? Second, yeah. Mm -hmm. number, yeah, uh, of, uh, of the ballet, which is transcribed. The, these are the first two of the three movements. The third movement is the longest of the three and the most difficult, and we're not doing it for obvious reasons. <laughs>
a strange ending because it immediately in the ballet goes on to tableau number three, which he didn't transcribe for piano at all. Um, but in the, in the suite for piano, he goes immediately into the beginning of number, number, number three of the three movements from Petrushka, which is actually tableau four, which begins with... <laughs> of mouth organs again and it's, it seems unbelievably joyful for a while and then the tragedy comes back at the very end well thank you that that was wonderful and, and it, it i i just keep thinking kept thinking you know this is the piano completely different from scriabin for example oh, yeah, yeah because absolutely. he started with tchaikovsky and scriabin uh, yeah, he wrote uh, eight years of seven, which are still quite Scrabinesque and a bit yeah. Rimsky Korsakovian. Um, and this is just a completely different instrument. Mm, uh, absolutely. T so, totally where does that come writing. from? I mean, I, I can never understand where things come from with Stravinsky. No. Yeah, well, the, the piece immediately before it was it not the King of the Stars for chorus and orchestra? Mm -hmm. And then prior to that was the Firebird, the famous Firebird ballet, which is so gloriously romantic and very virtuoso for the orchestra. Um, and very tonal and this is like a completely different language altogether and then almost immediately again he wrote the, the rite of spring the sacre du printemps okay well the rite of spring incredibly, <laughs> incredibly different we're going to talk a little bit about the rite of spring even though it's not for piano mm. Uh, because there as well, yeah, he, he basically composed it at the piano. The most famous chord uh, mm. of the Rite of Spring is also very pianistic, mm. isn't it? The, uh, the August it's, of Spring. When I conducted this piece, one, one of the things I did in the pre-concert tour was to get the cellos and violas to play the two chords that, this, that, that mm -hmm. become the polytonal yeah. seminal chord of the Rite of Spring that's, that's there, the first one. Um, sounds like E major, though it's actually... F flat major, mm. but it sounds like E major. And this also sounds fairly tonal, but Both when you put chords, them together. Yeah. One of the most wonderful um, eight bar in, phrases ever written. Yes. <laughs> I think that's what my friend the bassoonist was talking about when he said you should hear this piece. Well, you see, uh, what, what, what amazes me is that uh, Stravinsky, when he rehearsed this with the orchestra, he mm. actually told the basses and, uh, and the percussion, uh, imagine that you are the left hand of the piano. I don't mm. know what, what they thought of that, frankly, but, <laughs> but that tells you that he thought of that in very mm. pianistic terms, uh, such as the, the other example as well, this kind of umpa. Yeah. Yeah, Which is pattern. much more tonal, in fact. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but, first. but it's, it's still a piano kind <laughs> of texture. That really is rather lyrical by comparison mm -hmm. with most of the rest of the ballet, isn't it? But then it becomes, later on, there's a massive version mm -hmm. of the same theme. Yeah. The same, so I, sh I should play the... is the main theme of that movement. I'm sorry, it's disappeared, yeah. but the, the second example. Um, and it comes back in a massive fortissimo mm -hmm. version that is so horrifically dissonant that it, it still sounds incredibly shocking, despite all the dissonance we've heard since 1913. Yes, yes so I wanted to mention that uh, very important composers played uh, the Rite of Spring with Stravinsky. One of them was Debussy. Mm. And, um, and uh, uh, they, there was the, the, they played it at the, at the house of Louis Lallois, and La, Louis Lallois uh, wrote that after that, after they did that, and Debussy basically sight-read the thing, although it's so complicated, but he did it wonderfully. Mm. And he said there was no question of embracing, not even of compliments. We were silent, overwhelmed by this hurricane that had come from the depth of the ages and torn up our life by the roots. <laughs> it's very Absolutely. powerful, isn't it? It's, but, it's still, it still shocks me. To think about it, I've known it since I was 17. Yeah. You know, and, 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 yeah. and Debussy himself said, uh, wrote to Stravinsky, our reading at the piano uh, of Le Sacre de Printemps is always present in my mind. It haunts me like a beautiful nightmare, and I try in vain to reinvoke the terrific impression. 
so Debussy actually didn't like the piece. I mean, he, he was shocked by it, but he thought basically Stravinsky was thumbing his nose at music. He, mm. it, he went too far. Yeah, so he loved Petrushka and imitated Petrushka, but he didn't go very much further. And Prokofiev, on the contrary, Prokofiev also played it with Stravinsky and actually in public. So in the presence of the futurist artist, we play the piano duet version of The Rite of Spring. At this point, I had heard the work only once at Kusivitsky's concert, and I had a less than clear understanding of it. Now sitting down to play it with the composer in front of a large gathering, I was extremely nervous, as I knew that was incredibly difficult. And here again, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, Stravinsky, normally small and bloodless as he was, became engorged with blood while playing, <laughs> sweated, sang, or rather croaked, <laughs> and laid down such a strong, good rhythm that we played the Le Sacre to stunning effect. To my total and unexpected amazement, because he didn't expect it, I saw that Le Sacre is a magnificent work with its incredible colors, its clarity and mastery. So he so was a convert. It remains probably Stravinsky's greatest single statement, I think. Mm, I think Stravinsky yeah. himself realised that, even though he was a very young composer when he wrote it, um, because he didn't really know how to continue down that line. Mm. And of course, neither did any other composer. It was, it was like it was the First yeah. World War was the end of an era, and there were so many new influences from other countries, and there was so much doubt about the way the arts generally should go, never mind just music. Yeah. So I, I, I tried to imagine how they would have played. It probably mm -hmm. wouldn't have been exact, completely accurate. Maybe but, a bit yeah. like this. is but it sounds pretty accurate to me i have to say although Good. a little bit on the fast side yeah but it, it, it is it's, it's bernstein and michael tilson thomas oh, really? oh, okay. <laughs> well, that, that would explain it right. <laughs> yeah. okay now uh, i wanted to to have a little theme of the wrong notes i mean we heard a lot of wrong notes already but uh they <laughs> thank are... you for that <laughs> Um, I wanted to say that, that there is something also at the bottom of, of Stravinsky's style that has to do with a musical joke, yeah, of, of actually laughing at the wrong notes. Mm. Uh, one example is in Petrushka, it's a barrel organ with a missing pin. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to play with it. Basically, it's two clarinets and one suddenly just stops, yeah, it, it doesn't have a note, yeah, so you have a rest there. It's, it's a kind of funny moment. You can almost not hear it. It's quite difficult to... So it's like, yeah, yeah it's suddenly something is broken. So, so he liked this kind of jokes. And another joke that he did, but which proved to be, again, very seminal, is the polka that he wrote, as he said, as a caricature of Diaghilev. Um, because one part of the forehand duet that he wrote for Diaghilev was very simple, it's just two chords. Yeah, and um, so he played the polka to Diaghilev and to uh, uh, Italian composer Alfredo Casello in a hotel room in Milan. And I remember how amazed that both men were that the composer of Le Sacre de Printemps should have produced such a piece of popcorn. <laughs> um, for Casella, however, a new path has been indicated and he was not slow to follow it. So-called neoclassicism of a sort was born at that moment. Very cheeky comment, I thought. Absolutely. But, I'm yeah. just try trying to work out which hotel it was. I I've never managed to play any Stravinsky in a hotel and get away with it. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Sorry. You can hear it. it's as if the other pianist is completely in, in the wrong key. Yeah? Yeah. All the notes are wrong. Mm. <laughs> and uh, it, it's very interesting that it, it's a light example, but quite a lot stems from this, because basically what happens there with neoclassicism, yeah, that it's again, uh, very, some very familiar idioms are distorted, uh, changed, yeah, shifted, um, and yet at that point he stops laughing at it, or at least he presents it to you as if it is not humorous. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, the, I wanted to show this is actually, you know, a portrait of Stravinsky, who did somebody did in 1914. You pr probably cannot guess that it is Stravinsky, but um, and a couple of quotes from a review also of that year. Uh, which compares Stravinsky's music and the Rite of Spring with futurist paintings, where there's a displacement of things, you know, eyes have gone in, in different direction and so on. Uh, also compa uh, compares it with poetry, yeah, where the words are all mixed up at the time. Um, and he says displacement, or in Russian it's, it's like a shift, yeah, so shifting things. It becomes one of the most important principles of Stravinsky's music, and everything is shifted, yeah, tonalities, rhythms, intervals, octaves suddenly slipped mm. from into sevenths and, and mm, so yeah. on. And it's not always funny either. Well, <laughs> it's not funny anymore. But, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, some of his music, his neoclassical music, that's serious, particularly the, uh, the religious music is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, the Symphony of Psalms, which has got one of my favorite cadences in it. I can't quite remember it, I don't think. <laughs> uh, something like... I think that's right, something like. Yeah. It's almost jazzy, isn't it? Yes, and again, it comes from a normal cadence, which is kind of shifted. Yeah, yeah but it's shifted in a very beautiful way rather than in, in yes. a jerky way. And also Les Nos, which I have to say is my, probably my favorite, my personal like, favorite hold, piece. Hold of off the, about Les Nos, we'll get there I'm in a moment. I'm leaping ahead, I'm sorry. <laughs> let's, let's talk we about it. We should rehearse this, shouldn't we? <laughs> Actually, yeah, I don't know why I put Lenos later, but um, there is no reason for that. But basically, I, again, I wanted to quote, <laughs> we're coming to the Sonata, and I, I want to quote her from Prokofiev. Yeah, Stravinsky has delivered himself of a dreadful piano sonata, which he himself performs, not without a certain chic, and that's again a dig, but uh, the music itself sounds like Bach with smallpox. Yeah, so this is the, the displacement thing yeah, that, that happens. And if we, the interesting thing also, this is a, a sketch um, of, of the first movement of the piano sonata. And you can see that he actually puts fingerings in, which, mm. which is very rare for sketches. Yeah, people mm. usually wouldn't do that. Mm. Although to me, it tells you how pianistic the, the design of this piece was. And also probably that he was writing it for himself and wanted to work out things mm. sort of from the fingers mm. into the score. He wasn't very good at straight lines, was he? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wanted to show this, for example, another example of yeah, shift, like a trill mm. becomes... Uh... Yeah, so it, it, it appears like a sort of sore thumb, doesn't it, in the middle of, of a very lyrical line, yes. suddenly, <laughs> suddenly we have that. <laughs> yes, and it's not really a trill, yeah, it's, it's no. a ninth instead of a second, so mm. this is exactly the kind of perverse uh, thing that he would do. Yeah. Just to show you how other things yeah, sort of, uh, came from classical composers into Stravinsky. For example, these little Mozartian, uh, sort of little rhythmic things. Mm. I don't even know what to call them, so little sighs or something like that. You mm. can see them in Stravinsky as well. Mm. Yeah, the texture is sort of almost the same. But the melody is kind of perverse. Yeah, the melody would never go down a seventh, for example, in a classical piece. Yeah, or no. up a nine. Mm. Um, or um, you know, for the second movement, which you are going to play, uh, which I think was was taken from from Bach, uh, Bach's organ piece. Uh, which he probably knew in actually in Busoni's version, yeah. uh, and it's interesting because usually people say, "Oh, Busoni is a neoclassicist," but it's not the right kind of neoclassicist because it's not ironic because Busoni loves Bach, yeah, and he does it with piety and so on, yeah. and Stravinsky does it with irony. But interestingly, you know, I found uh, this letter where um, where Stravinsky actually uh, talks about a Busoni piece that he really was influenced by. So mm. there is a connection. Between this well, Bozzoni being another composer who was trying to find his way, of mm -hmm. course, in his original music as opposed to his great transcriptions of Bach. Bozzoni's original mm -hmm. music is, is another language uh, that really is, is kind of overlooked uh, at the same mm -hmm. time as Stravinsky, Prokofiev, Bartok and, and so on, Schoenberg. There is Bozzoni too and it's a very, very interesting melting pot mm -hmm. of different nationalities mm -hmm. apart from anything else. Yes, um, so you can see that, you know, I also put some, some Bach examples there of, of how he takes just various parts of the figuration and then 
plays with them. Mm. Yeah, so it's as if he sort of looked at the, at the few things. He actually also used uh, piano exercises as inspiration for, <laughs> for this neoclassical music. Mm. And it's, uh, that's one of the, the, the guys that he took lessons from in the 20s yeah. that he used as well. But it's all based in, even though it is ironic, um, I think it's based in genuine admiration for almost mm. all composers in the past, as long as they died. Mm -hmm. He wasn't particularly interested in supporting people who were alive anymore. And he, he was a bit of a bitch when it came to other composers, wasn't he? But, but, but once they were dead, he was extremely generous about them. Yes, I think it, it comes from admiration, but he also had this, he had to present a different kind of aesthetic stance, yeah? Mm. That he's very cool about, that this is what he says, you know, the sonata is like dry, extra dry champagne. <laughs> it <laughs> yeah. does not give a sense of sweetness. No. It does not relax like other forms of this drink. Instead, it burns. Well, look at his face. It's exactly the same kind of attitude. <laughs> well, that's why I put it there next to the quote. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, yeah, shall we have the sonata? This is um, sonata at 1924 it was written, yes? Yes. Uh, which places it 11 years after the Rite of Spring and in a totally different world, really. So this is the second and third movements of, of that sonata, which is, in fact, the piece that you can hear Stravinsky himself play on YouTube.
I love the whole thing, actually, but the last chord is so cheeky, um, which, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I'm actually always reminded, although I think it's the other way around, of Hendemit, who always ends his, or almost always ends his pieces in this very lyrical way, after having been through all kinds of polytonality. Well, guess who he got that from. <laughs> Indeed, yes. yes. That's a prize example of exactly that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, I thought you know the way you played it was it was beautiful and, and romantic kind, even. <laughs> um, very and uh, this, of course, is the the very famous quote. Uh, yeah, that uh, he must have um, he must have said mm. this um, on purpose. Yeah, I consider that music is by very nature is, is essentially powerless to express anything at all whether a feeling, an attitude of mind, or psychological mood, a phenomenon of nature, etc. Music Why doesn't would he say a thing like that? <laughs> well, because he wanted to be contrary, yeah, yeah, because that, that right. was his thing. And, and actually, I think, I think there is some truth in probably the implication of that, which is that music is by association um, going to produce an emotional reaction in the listener. And it is always in the context of something else. And I remember reading somewhere that if you were to play the Chopin Funeral March to someone who'd never heard any Western classical music and ask them what emotion it, it conveyed, it quite possibly wouldn't be sadness at all. Um, and I yeah. suppose the same applies to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and everything else that yes. we immediately associate with a very obvious emotion. But someone who doesn't know the, the context Yes, we need to be culturally immersed in, in this. Yeah. And then it means something and it expresses yeah, lots yeah. of things. But anyway, he was fascinated with this idea of non-expression. And he didn't like pianists playing rubato uh, or in an expressive way. So actually he wanted to use a pianola. <laughs> so that was his next trick. And that piece sounds like a pianola, doesn't it? Right. It sounds like you're going there with the, with the pedals. <laughs> he yeah. even wrote an etude for pianola, which I mm. think is such a perverse idea, yeah, to write a, a study yeah, for pianola. Mm. I'll just give you a little bit uh, of taste of that. That by this idea, he actually wanted to have, instead of the orchestra in Lenos, before he came out with the idea, the idea of four pianos, he wanted to have pianolas instead mm -hmm. of the orchestra. And then he was disappointed that you could still do rubato on the pianola because <laughs> the guy who pulled the role through, you know, he could actually yeah, affect it. Yeah. Uh, so Is he, it not the case, though? I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but I mean, it always strikes me when I, when I read the things that people, not just Stravinsky, but people from that era tended to say. Mm. They were reacting negatively against a, 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 a sort of excess that was going on at the time. Mm. Mm. Uh, Bartok certainly did, and, and uh, Prokofiev very famously said things like, the time has come to do without Chopin and Mozart, mm. and, and all these kind of things, which, which sounds like a teenager, the sort of thing I'd have said in 1967. And, you know... Um, when they got older, they completely changed their minds and absolutely revealed their admiration for this. But there was definitely, around about the time that these composers mm. were, were, were writing, there was definitely a tendency towards excess, excess expressiveness, mm. uh, which was almost like quiche. Well, it was quiche mm. In, mm. in many cases, just over the top. And I can, I can quite easily imagine in that situation wanting to say something very contrary mm. to stop it. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you then uh, look back from several decades later, it's a very mm -hmm. different matter. Mm -hmm. So,
So um, eventually, yeah, so he gave up on the idea of pianos and Lenots and he replaced them with four pianos and mm. percussion. Thank God. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he says that these four pianos created the perfectly homogeneous, perfectly impersonal and perfectly mechanical sound. So again, he thinks of the piano mm. as being this non-expressive percussion mm. mechanical instrument. Mm. But if you listen to the end of Lenoth and look at uh, how it's presented in the original ballet, uh, you, you realize how beautiful mm. it is. Yeah, yeah? And, incredibly so. Yeah, and how beautiful the harmonies are when they're actually played on the piano. Mm. <laughs> Incredible. And of course, immediately reminds me of Messiaen, mm -hmm. who, who ex, ex, uh, absolutely explored the, the resonances of bells, which is exactly what Stravinsky is doing. And he's pretending that it, it doesn't have any emotional impact. It's phenomenally emotional. It, it, it's very obviously um, redolent of a, of a, of a, of a Russian ceremony. Well, it's what it is. It's a Russian ceremony, a wedding. Uh, and it is so Russian, of course. And, and Stravinsky perhaps didn't realize just how Russian he was. I'm not really sure. Mm. As he was an immigrant into France and then America. And well, I think, I think he was at that point. He was mm. writing a lot of Russian pieces precisely because he realized that he's emigrated yeah. now for, forever. He couldn't come back mm. yeah, because the revolution happened while he was abroad. Yes. So... Um, Yes, just talking about that, uh, I, I, I put here an interest, very interesting p p uh, quotation from Schoenberg, who says that the manner of performing classical music, because the manner changed at that time, this is 48, he, he, he says, mm. of the so-called romantic type, suppressing all emotional qualities and all unnotated change of tempo and expression, derives from the style of playing primitive dance music. Well, slightly objectionable com comment, but like, we're not going to go into that. This style came to Europe by way of America, he blazed America, um, where no old culture regulated presentation, but where a certain frigidity of feeling reduced all musical expression. Astonishingly enough, almost all European conductors and instrumentalists bowed to this uh, uh, dictate uh, without resistance all were suddenly afraid to be called romantic, ashamed of being called sentimental. I find that uh, this interesting, you know, as I say, it has very sort of xenophobic uh, aspects to it. But nevertheless, I, I find it interesting that he connects it to the arrival of things like ragtime and foxtrot, mm. which really had to be in time, absolutely had to be. Yeah, mm. uh, you mm. could not, because otherwise you couldn't do the syncopation. Mm. Um, so uh, our last uh, segment is about the ragtime. Mm. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to show you the, the original uh, music that, that Stravinsky got absolutely so fascinated by that he, he would improvise in the style of rag for hours. Um, and uh, he, he got obsessed with it, yeah, and he, he, he wrote several pieces based on this. So this is the original, yeah, Scott Joplin. Mechanically reproduced. <laughs> that's, that's where it comes from. Yeah? So now if you look at what Stravinsky does, so that's Stravinsky piano rag music that we're going to hear in a moment, 
Yeah, so you can see that he uses the same kind of rhythmic syncopation patterns, yeah, where the beat is displaced. Yeah, so instead of the strong beat, you, you sort of jump, it gives you a, a little shock. Yeah, or the beat just doesn't happen, yeah, because the music still kind of goes on. Mm. Uh, but in, in Scott Joplin, yeah, it, there's always this vamping pattern, yeah, the umpa pattern, which is always keep steady. It has to be steady. So look at this perversity that he does there. Yeah, so he uses the same rhythms, but he mm. changes the meter all the time. Yeah, he even uses that, that same pattern on the left hand. Yeah. But it stops making sense because he actually changes it from two to, to three, yeah, to four and so on. Yeah, I'd like to ask him, in fact, why that happens sometimes, because you can't actually hear it. In the Rite mm. of Spring, you can hear the rhythmic patterns very strongly. Um, but the, the piano rag music, I think, um, is anticipating the soldier's tale. It's actually, it's actually later. The, the soldier's tale was okay. first. Uh -huh. Soldier's tale influenced the piano rag music. But, okay, mm. well, but the, piano, the, the solo, soldier's tale, uh, of course, is a kind of theatre piece, but the, the instrumentation is for seven people, so it needs a conductor and it has to have bar lines in order to keep it remotely mm. together. Whereas in the solo piece, piano rag music, he doesn't bother with that. Uh, for quite a lot of the, the piece, he throws away the bar line altogether and you get line, a line and a half with no metre whatsoever, um, except that the rhythm is very precise within that mile, um, mile and a half, that, that bar, uh, bar and a half. And, and it's very, very, um, it, it's very, I have conducted the soldier's tale and it's very strange because there's one particular quite well-known bit where you go. And this is a double bass that just keeps going. You're conducting like this. And it's a very strange feeling. I can't even do it. It's like they're doing this, um, where, where you're conducting something that keeps on changing meter, but it actually sounds like it doesn't change at all. And it's a very odd <laughs> well, thing. I want to know from him why. <laughs> well, this is why Kusevitsky, yeah, when he was conducting the Rite of Spring, he rebarred it or something. He, yeah, he yeah. Put, put it all in 4 4. And just Bernstein <laughs> did that. Bernstein. Did he did that yes, as well? Did. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's, it's interesting to, to, to know why or to ask rather why Bernstein would do that with the very piece that sounds like the rhythms that he'd mm. written down, mm. whereas later on it really mm. doesn't. <clears throat> and it's a very strange sensation, I can assure you, because if you get it wrong, of course, the whole thing falls apart, but it doesn't sound mm. as if it's changing. I wanted to play, just to show you how neoclassicism and um, ragtime yeah, are conducted. That's Available, it's all good. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Yes, that's you pl playing the concerto. So in the concerto, you will hear how you start with a classical uh, moment, and then you go into some kind of more trivial march, and then suddenly these syncopated rhythms start coming out. And this, I think, was a, a, also another defining moment for 20th century music, when people realized you could mix all of these things together. And Prokofiev was quite struck. He didn't like the pockmarked Bach, but he liked the, the, mm. the, the idea of mixing things. Yeah, yeah. So just a little bit... Uh, That's a quote from the sonata. It's exactly the same mm. music just there at that point. And it's the same pianola effect, isn't it? Mm. There's this kind of mechanical yes. Yes. drive. Yeah. Uh, another thing I wanted to mention is just that these crashing chords in the middle of uh, piano rag music mm. reminds me very much what, what he does in Dance Roots. Yeah, that kind of connects the beginning yeah. and, and, yeah. and this period. Yeah, on it's the right of spring. Uh, <laughs> 
that kind of chord, yes. Yeah. It, it is almost jazzy, yeah. not quite. So <laughs> just, before, yeah, just before uh, we, we end with Peter playing piano rag music, I just wanted to show you this wonderful cartoon, yeah, a punch cartoon from 1927. <laughs> yeah, what's the matter, dear? Is it bad news or Stravinsky? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> uh, we found, yeah, that even when we advertised this talk on Twitter, somebody reacted in this way. Yeah, so mm. this, uh, you know, the punch that Stravinsky packs mm. is still is still yeah, quite absolutely. felt. Yeah. Mm, but just to summarize, yeah, the, there are so many things in his music connected to the piano. The piano is connected to all these instruments that he wants to imitate, such as yeah, mouth organ concertina, bells, percussion, cymbalom. Uh, it, it's connected to all of that. And, mm. and all these other things that I mentioned, yeah, chords that lie under fingers, fingerings and sketches, piano exercises as a source of material, piano sound and piano mechanism mm. yeah, as a sort of inspiration. Yeah. So this is just a recap slide. Mm. And mm. Um, uh, then I think we can... Quite uh, fantastic influence over every, every composer since, it seems to me. Even if they didn't want him to be, I think he was. So this is piano rag music, which I have to say, I don't think is his, his greatest work, but it's great fun, and it has the silliest ending of anything I've ever heard, and that, that's quite a lot of pieces.
that's the end. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. I'll do a bow. Yeah. Thank you.